Welcome to Legal Ethics Now and Next. I'm Jim Dopke, partner at the Chicago firm of Robinson Stewart, Montgomery and Dopke. We concentrate our practice in legal ethics, professional responsibility, and professional liability matters. We're all former attorney disciplinary prosecutors, and our partner, Mary Robinson, was the administrator of the Illinois disciplinary system. On this podcast, we discuss substantive ideas, practice tips, and trends in our industry here in Illinois and nationwide. I took a bit of an unplanned hiatus from recording episodes, but trust me, I kept busy with litigation, other work obligations, presenting at the NOBC and April conferences, that's the National Organization of Bar Council and Association of Professional Responsibility Lawyers. I wrote a long article for an ABA presentation I'll be doing in February. My partners, Sari Montgomery and Stephanie Stewart and I co-edited an ICL chapter. I guested for two episodes on the Great Employee to Lawyer podcast for the National Employment Lawyers Association. See? Lots of stuff. In one of the presentations I recently did, I was addressing whether and how lawyers could accept cryptocurrency as payment, and I think I accidentally coined a word, fluxatility. I meant to say either fluctuation or volatility, but it came out as all one word. Maybe it'll catch on and be the next big thing among thought leaders, and I'll have a line of best-selling fluxatility-branded tote bags. Or maybe I'll just keep practicing law and thinking about issues like whether lawyers can accept crypto. This is an issue that has long landed us in the realm of, you can, but should you? Now, in light of the FTX collapse and ensuing events, I wonder if the calculation changes to, maybe not, and even if you could, why would you? There have been some ethics opinions issued in various states about acceptance of cryptocurrency as payment. I started seeing them around 2019. Very recently, on September 19th of this year, the Virginia State Bar published their legal ethics opinion number 1898, which is called Accepting Cryptocurrency as an Advanced Fee for Legal Services. It's a thorough examination of several issues, relying on other opinions, but conducting its own analysis. The basic gist is that a lawyer may accept crypto as an advanced fee for services yet to be performed with appropriate safeguards. So what kind of advanced fee is is being envisioned here? To use the terms used by the Illinois Supreme Court in the 2007 case Dowling v. Chicago Options Associates, is it a security retainer, which is held in an IOLTA and remains the client's property and billed against as earned? Or is it an advanced payment retainer, earned when paid and deposited in the attorney's business account? The Virginia opinion says the lawyer, quote, may keep the cryptocurrency in its digital form and is not required to convert payment into U.S. currency and deposit the funds in the lawyer's trust account, end quote, pursuant to Rule 1.15a. It also says that crypto can't be held in an IOLTA, only in a wallet or a crypto-specific storage device, and that the lawyer should regard this whole thing as a business transaction with the client for purposes of Rule 1.8 and that the lawyer is essentially holding a piece of client property, not currency, by taking custody of the cryptocurrency, and that when accepting cryptocurrency for safekeeping under Rule 1.15, the lawyer-client agreement should, quote, specify that the cryptocurrency remains the property of the client until earned by the lawyer, as does the appreciation or loss on the cryptocurrency, end quote. So what kind of retainer payment is this again?
You're holding it separately because you have to. It can only be held in certain ways, but not in a trust account. You have to do special Rule 1.8 paperwork, get the client's written consent, and ensure that the transaction is not only the charging of a reasonable fee, but also essentially fair to the client, and give the client the opportunity to consult with other counsel about whether they should be doing this. And assuming you get past that, you can't just bill against it as you earn fees like you would with fiat currency. You have to work out when any part of the crypto can be applied to fees that you've earned. The when and the how of all that and the who. The who takes any gain and the who bears the risk of loss. And you have to treat the cryptocurrency as the client's property, not just like money that belongs to them, but as if you had taken jewelry or a piece of artwork as a fee, meaning you have to take steps to ensure the security of that thing. That strikes me as a lot of high-concept work to do on the front end just to get to the point where you get a fee. The Rule 1.8 business transaction regulations strike me as a particularly significant barrier. There are times when regulators determine that an acknowledged business transaction with a client isn't inherently suspect, but lawyers sometimes have to go through a lot to get the regulator to arrive at that position. Also, I haven't met a lawyer yet who just loves the idea of sending a prospective client off to talk to another lawyer to see if they can hire the first lawyer. And in this situation, who are they going to talk to? And what's the opinion of that attorney on crypto attorney fees going to be? And in this context, given the volatility of crypto valuation, how do we determine what is fair to the client? As the Virginia opinion points out, the restatement of the law governing lawyers, third, at section 126, comment E, says fairness is determined based on facts that reasonably could be known at the time of the transaction, not as facts later develop. Okay, fair enough, so you go with what reasonably could be known, but what is that? The whole rationale behind Rule 1.8 is the precept that a lawyer is more sophisticated than the client in business matters and can't be allowed to take advantage of that. Here, Rule 1.1 would require the lawyer to understand enough about crypto to accept it as payment and do what's required to manage it. But is that really enough? Can the lawyer really learn enough? And if there's an FTX-style implosion that zeroes out the fee that the lawyer and client thought that the client had paid, and the lawyer refuses to do any more work absent further payment, the aggrieved client goes to a zealous regulator, won't both of them say that the lawyer should have known of the potential collapse and advise the client against the crypto payment? It's certainly a distinct possibility. What about the lawyer's ongoing work and duties with respect to the crypto? Rule 1.1 requires the lawyer to become competent not just to do a crypto fee agreement or payment, but to monitor and deal with the whole situation as the representation progresses. As the Virginia opinion says, the lawyer must safeguard against the many ways that cryptocurrency may be stolen or lost. It says, quote, because blockchain transactions are unregulated, uninsured, anonymous, and irreversible, cryptocurrency is regularly targeted for digital fraud and theft, end quote. 
Legitimate online wallets and platforms can be hacked. Wallets and exchange platforms themselves may be fraudulent. See FTX. Even if they're not being done with fraudulent intent, they can at least be run completely haphazardly or maybe both. Whether it's stored offline or online, cryptocurrency can be lost or damaged or stolen, and it's the lawyer's responsibility to protect against that. Do you know how to do that? I don't, and today I'm not confident I could learn. But let's say you make it through the representation. Nobody hacks into the wallet where you've stored the crypto payment, and the exchange it was purchased from didn't go down in flames. The representation is over. The client's case is won or lost, and there's no further work you can do or are expected to do. And the client says, go ahead and sell that crypto I gave you. Pay yourself and give me the difference. Sounds simple, right? But where do you go to sell it? The same exchange where it was purchased? Sounds good. What if that's shut down, though? What if now it turns out to be a Ponzi scheme with no available assets? What if by this time the SEC or some other regulator has decided that crypto is effectively an unregistered security? Is it legal for you to sell one of those? What if the client directs you to sell it using an exchange you know or reasonably believe to be fraudulent? Can you do that? Even if you get past those kinds of scenarios, what if you go to sell the currency and find that it's worth substantially less than it was when you received it? Do you sell it anyway? That's what the client told you to do, and it's her property. But the, her case is over. You don't have ongoing duties to her, do you? Well, you took this property, and you did agree to hold it at her direction and be paid from the proceeds, so let's say you go ahead and sell it. Did you just assume some fiduciary duties? Do you have to consult with the client about the valuation issue before selling it, or can you just go ahead? If the former, are you now acting as an investment advisor? Can you be held responsible for what happens as a fiduciary would be? Can the client hold you responsible for the drop in value? Or, if you just go ahead and sell it, can the client claim that you acted without her authority because she meant that you should sell it for a profit and you didn't do that? Or, what if the value is low enough that it doesn't come close to the value of the services as you build them or as you envision them, but the client is unwilling to compromise or pay the difference? I think I have more questions than answers on this thing. A lot of the answers I can come up with to the what-if questions aren't very appetizing. For most of them, it's, if that happens, you might have exposure to at least a disciplinary investigation. When it comes to the questions about fiduciary duties or continuing duties, I would say it might be best not to say that the lawyer had no duties to the client because the representation terminated, Rather, just that the lawyer's duties did not involve ensuring profitability of an investment. They typically would not. There's no rule of professional conduct that requires a lawyer to give accurate investment advice. And, in Illinois anyway, we have case law that says that a lawyer can't be disciplined for anything other than a violation of the rules of professional conduct. That's the Caravitas case mentioned in my first episode. But that doesn't mean that an investigation can't ensue from all this. And if the complainant successfully frames the lawyer's conduct in selling the crypto asset in a way that violates Rule 1.8, that is, done without sufficient written protections or without an opportunity to consult with the independent counsel, then the lawyer could face a real problem. If you're thinking about any ethical issue, big or small, 
if you have a one-off question or a larger project. If you're having difficulty getting past something or if you're looking at the best ethical ways to solidify and grow your business, make sure you contact Robinson, Stewart, Montgomery & Dockey today. We represent clients in attorney and judicial discipline defense, professional liability defense, sanctions proceedings, and admissions and character and fitness matters. We also provide opinion letters and expert testimony concerning a wide variety of professionalism issues. We have the experience, insight, and empathy you'll need to find the best way forward, ethically speaking. Call us today for a consultation at 312-676-9875 that's 312-676-9875, or check out our website at www.rsmdlaw.com for more information. None of this is to say that the Virginia opinion is wrong or incorrectly reasoned. It's neither. But I think it, like a lot of discourse on legal ethics and crypto, was written with some assumptions in mind. Like, crypto is more vulnerable to fraud than fiat currency in some ways, but it's an industry, and it has pillars, and they won't just collapse due to massive fraud. And yet, here we are. Lawyers should always be aware of fraud or anything even on the fringes of it. And recent events in the crypto world really move us from the fringes towards something quite a bit more dangerous, for now and for the future. that's a wrap on episode five. Thanks for listening. I hope you found it helpful. Please stay tuned for more episodes where we'll discuss emerging trends in our industry and case law that affects lawyers and their practice and the practice of law at large. I'm Jim Dopke. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon.